Please, please, please! What is happening? Welcome to Working Hours, a show about a place called Leeds, a time called now, and an activity called work. Working Hours wants to record 1,000 lawyers over the course of this, the most important decade in the history of the human species, and ask them about what they do all day and hear how they feel about it. My mission is to try to map out what my city, Leeds, a city that has declared a climate emergency, is doing during humanity's biggest emergency. On working hours, we hear how lawyers have, are, and will be coping with our multiple crises. The global pandemic, Brexit, and of course, the ongoing and accelerating collapsing of capitalism, the state, and the climate through this decade. To do this, I need people, people like you, dear listener. Most of all, I need people who are in Leeds or who are from Leeds to come on this show and be my guests. So please join me and help me with this mission whenever and however you can. Critically, I will need people like you, dear listener, as financial backers. Please consider supporting or donating to this project. You can do so with a £1 monthly donation via either Patreon or Ko-fi, or you could donate any one-off amount to Working Hours via either Ko-fi or through the LibrePay button on the About page of Western Studios' website. Thank you. My name is Simon, and this is all my fault. What did you want to be when you grew up? I don't think I had a very clear idea at all what I wanted to be when I grew up. Uh, no, I don't think, I, I don't think, I think that was just more a matter of life chances which steered me in the path that I eventually took. Mm. You're listening to Series 3, Episode 32, and to my guest, Ron Wiener. This is another Zoom interview recorded on the 24th of August, 2022. Hello, loves. Ron Weiner, or Weiner, um, I didn't check the pronunciation, so apologies to Ron, is a semi-retired community theatre director, socio-dramatist and grandparent. Born in London, brought up in Australia, Ron has lived in England for the past 67 years and in Leeds since 1975. He has worked all over the world as a socio-dramatist. Ron is a founder member of ISCAN, the International Sociodrama and Action Methods Network, which runs courses on Zoom and on Live, covering topics such as global warming, ageing, team building, facilitating organisational change, and much more. Ron is a member of two local community psychology groups and writes academic articles. He also runs an online Zoom improvisation group and directs at an Asian theatre company, Chai Cup. You can find out more about Ron at ronweener.co.uk. That's www.romeooscarnovemberwhiskey. India Echo November Echo Romeo dot co dot UK. Now, please enjoy this episode of Working Hours with Ron Wiener. So, what is it that you ended up doing then? Well, well, a whole variety of different things at different stages of my life. As I'm quite old now, and my life's passed through lots of different stages. I think the first job I ever had after leaving university in Sydney, Australia, was working in Hobart for the Australian government as a careers officer, which mm. always struck me as being really odd when I was 20, 21, with no life experience <laughs> at all. I actually meant to be advising young people on, uh, on what they should do. I mean, my main major at university then was, was psychology. I then were, 
I then came over to England and I hitchhiked around Europe for a bit and then had enough of that. And so I got a job at something that's no longer exists called the National Institute of Industrial Psychology. Mm. Decided that didn't take me very far and, and that I and that a past degree from an Australian university wasn't a good um, stepping stone. So I thought I'd, I'd go back into academia for a bit. Tried a number of universities, including, um, I think one in Wales, which said they didn't recognize my Australian degree at all. And I'd have to start with then as an undergraduate. But luckily the LSE took a punt on me. And I then did, I then did a PhD in social psychology and my dissertation was on drug taking among school children. Gee. And that led to, um, that led to a book and then led me doing some consultancy work with the World Health Organization mm. and working with Rotterdam City Council. And then I'd, I'd done postgraduate, uh, postgraduate work at the LSE doing conflict research. So myself and a colleague against at the time there was con all the conflict going on in Northern Ireland and we went and set up the Northern Ireland Research Institute. Mm. And I worked there primarily as a community planner for over three years, three or four years. That led to another book. Then that was in the worst time of the troubles and was a lot of adventures, if you might like to say. Then mm. I came back to England and got a job. At, that's when I came to Leeds in 1975, which is the year I remember because it's the year my daughter was born. Mm. And I got a job the adult education department of the university of Leeds. So, and then, so I was doing basically community education, community development work mm. that finished. Then I got it and then I moved into, now I got a job at Bradford university, setting up a community development department in nature and community psychology. Mm. I got tired of being an academic. And went and then ran a psychiatric day center in Leeds. Mm -hmm. That led on to training in something called a social dramatist. Mm -hmm. And I did that. Then I also, then I became a freelance training consultant working with social services departments, um, voluntary sector organizations, or a variety of different organizations and developed my career as a social dramatist, which led to running um, workshops across most of the world. Then I came back and decided that I needed to do something which I could, could continue to do in, as I aged. So I became a community theatre director mm -hmm. and ran different community theatre groups. I still work as a social dramatist. I still work as a community theatre director. Mm -hmm. And that's where I am. And, and so obviously I'm now part-time rather than, rather than full-time. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It seems like all the sexy and glamorous stuff were kind of before you hit Leeds. I mean, would you agree with that? <laughs> no, well, no, I think, I, I think there were, there were, there were good, advent, good adventures beforehand and also very interesting projects since I, well, I came to Leeds. I mean, when I was in Bradford, I worked with community groups there and we set up a project called the Bradford Musical, mm -hmm. which lasted for about three years. And it was tried to bring together as many different groups into a mass event that eventually ran out of money and steam. 
But the idea stayed in my head. And when we came to Leeds, when the arena opened, I worked with a couple of groups had an idea about bringing all the choir, as many choirs as we could together in Leeds mm. to develop a story about a wedding. And that we would then take these, take the final bit of it after the singing bit down to the playhouse, do the wedding there. And then we would finish with a mass event and mm. closing Brigadoff where all the different, different cultural organizations in Leeds could have stalls. And that would be the wedding celebration. Mm. So we went to the arena with this idea. We thought this was a great idea. You know, it helped to establish the, the arena as part of the community of Leeds. Mm-hmm. And then we got, we said, how much would that cost in terms of just the tryout thing in, um, in money terms, if we wanted to hire the, for a couple of days. And they said, then, well, if we put it at our base, most basic rates at 40,000 pound a night. Mm. So that, so that killed that particular project. <laughs> so, yeah, I think there's a couple of things that I want to look at initially. So your kind of journey from doing analysis and, you know, academic work and psychiatric work, psychology, psychological work into doing drama. And then the other thing that I'd like to sort of explore a little bit is obviously you're working in a field. I mean, there's been a lot of changes in that field and you're not like in the early days of it, but you are in to point where, like I would say all of those ideas are much more accepted and widespread now, you know? So yeah, so sort of, it'd be nice to look at, you know, what you see as the changes and sort of how that, how, how your work has developed, I suppose, but also how the, the sector's developed. Because, you you know, you're starting up, starting a lot of things and a lot of that seems to be quite, or, you know, like maybe higher end, more cutting edge stuff that you're kind of doing. Like, it doesn't sound like there was a lot of the, the programs that you've mentioned happening at those times, it seems more like you're doing, especially because you're in academia. So I'm, I'm like making assumptions here. But if, yeah, if you could talk about those two elements for a bit. I think what what's interesting, when I ran, I've been looking back at some of the writing I did when I was running a, a psychiatric day centre in Leeds. Mm-hmm. This was in late 1970s, early 1980s. Mm. And... I wrote a bit about community psychology then, and I found the article I wrote some recently and in 1976, I think, and I took it into some academics at the university and they said, God, this is really relevant. Part of it was about issues to do with mental health. Part of it was to do with back in the mid 1970s, there was a huge amount of industrial strife, trade union conflict issues around community development, there were poverty, there were strikes. And so stagflation. Stagflation. So what was interesting was how reminiscent the present situation is with a lot of the stuff that was happening 40, sort of 40 years ago. Mm. And I think part of the interesting thing in some ways is how almost like each generation, it's very difficult talking to people often about stuff you did. 30 or 40 years ago, campaigns you were actually involved in. Mm. And, and, and that's sort of seen as old history and not relevant, whereas actually many of the things that are happening now have their precedence in things that happened there and no lessons to be learned. 
said, for example, at the moment, one of the campaigns, one of the things behind the climate change thing is, is to get an, and also the don't pay campaigns that are around at the moment, where people uh, not paying or, or getting arrested and things like that. Mm, non-compliance. Non-compliance in order to bring the system to a halt. Mm. But if you go back to things like the Committee 100 and protests about CMD, yeah, scores of years ago, 40, 50 years ago, they, they were doing exactly the same campaign mm. thing on the idea that if enough people protested, mm. and, and so there becomes things like magical numbers, that you have to get enough people on side to protest, otherwise the state just picks off individuals mm. along the way. So, so, it's, so there's lessons to be learned on why didn't campaigns earlier on work or what, what parts of them worked, what parts of them didn't work, what mm. are the lessons that you could bring forward now. Mm. So how do, you, how do you get enough people? And so there's this magical number that's talked about as 3.5%. If you get a 3.5% of the population, to engage in some sort of protest. Yeah, that's the tipping point. Yeah. That, that becomes the tipping point. So how does XR or these other campaigns actually marshal the 3.5% mm. in, in order to be able to do something? Mm. And then, of course, it raises a whole lot of other issues because even if, even if you get the sufficient member and, and it begins overwhelming, if you like, the, the state in some way, the existing, the existing forces, what, what, what are the new structures that are going to take, that are going to be in place, which ensure that the old system doesn't immediately rock back into place again? Mm -hmm. Because then you, you can begin looking at things like the Arab Spring, mm -hmm. what happened in Saranka recently, where, where you had the mass of people and the protests actually happening. Mm -hmm people temporarily taking power mm. when the state came back into power again. Mm. So, yeah. so there's that sense of, of where, of what is it that we learn from history that we can take forward into the present? Mm. Mm. I mean, I think, think a lot of the, you know, a lot of people are kind of like, why isn't there more protest and why isn't there more, you know, like, why isn't there more militancy or more organization around this, that, and the other, I think. A lot of it is, you know, we do pay attention to history to a degree. And a lot of people are kind of like, well, that doesn't work or that doesn't work. So it's like, is it really worth going out and getting, you know, beaten by the police or stampled by, you know, stamped on by the police for something that might not necessarily win anyway? And then if you do win, then it's that problem, like you say, of like, you know, so you take power now, what do you do with it? How do you wield it now? Yeah. Many years, many years ago, I ran a WEA class, which was actually taking that particular point where we, we said, if, if you're the revolutionary committee and you've taken charge of leads, mm. let's explore what you would do and how, yeah. and how it would actually work. Mm. What would, what would be different? So in a sense. And a lot of the training about, a lot of the work I do as a, as a social dramatist is actually creating, if you like, dramatic situations which enable people to explore what's going on in a particular group or a particular topic like global warming mm -hmm. and to be able to try to understand it from as many viewpoints as possible mm -hmm. and then to begin 
looking where it, like where in the system you, you can actually find a way of beginning to push for change. Mm. Yeah, it's sort of, I suppose, like looking for weakness in a chain, but also looking for the strength of like what you know what what's the cohesive stuff what's holding everything together and what's the points that you can triangulate on and how can you leverage this or how could you work in there so sort of creating that mental map for people yeah so you're working on a lot of funded stuff you're traveling around you're based in london you're at the lse which must have you know i mean it's a good place for contacts and networking isn't it the lse and you you sort of center there in london you're working out in northern ireland like you're involved in a lot of stuff. Did that all just come from the book? Because you sort of said that you published the book and then it seemed like... Yeah, the book, a... I mean, the, the first book I published was about, was about my, my PhD on drug taking. So that, in a sense, had a very narrow focus in, in, in terms of the drug, edu- if you like, basically the drug education field. Mm. The going over and working in Northern Ireland was entirely different. And it was interesting because... It, it's probably one of the, the few times in this country where there's been a, where temporarily there's been an armed working class. Mm. So, and, and so, yeah. And so that was very interesting in terms of the community action that actually, that actually took place. The, the power balances, if you like, between the, the community groups with the paramilitary organizations and mm. the state was... The, the community groups at that time, for a brief period of time, had a lot of had a lot of power. I mean, I can remember one time being with community activists, and we were trying to stop some redevelopment taking place because we didn't like the plans they that were going through, which were all about high rise blocks and getting rid and getting rid of ribbon ribbon road shopping. And the uh, government minister or one of their officials sitting at the desk opposite us. We would say, well, we're going to send the bulldozers in on Monday. And the, one of the people sitting next to me and said, they're likely to be shot if they come. And so, there were, I mean, again, it, it didn't last long, but it was, it was very interesting where the race, if you like, the power balance in between the state and the working class was temporarily in a much more fluid state. Yes, mm. I mean that's a good answer to that sort of. Oh, we're we're going to do this development. We're sending the bulldozers in. Oh, no, you won't. We'll shoot them. It's kind of a, <laughs> it's pretty final. <laughs> but normally it works the other way, doesn't it? Like we're just sending the bulldozers in. Yes, so that, what you're going to do? Yeah, I mean one of the things you learn is that very rarely, you know, in in nearly all cases where there's community participation. Like the state already knows the answer that it wants, mm. and it's and, just trying to get you to say yes to it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, we've come to ask you, even though we've decided already what we're doing, but we we feel like we should pretend you have a voice. <laughs> so, what what do you want to do? Okay, we won't do that. So, let's go into then. I mean, let let's stay a bit more on on sort of the changes you've seen within the industry. So. Obviously, academic work is largely, you know, you're in books, you're doing research, or you're researching, you know, doing an activity or a, a project where you're you're sort of conducting research. I would imagine you're doing some teaching. Is it was it pretty much nine to five working in an office, you know, 
book-filled rooms, lots of writing by pen. Like, how how was it? And it was it was varied depending on which job I actually had. Mm. So when I was working for the adult education department, some of that was working in the department, but I had a, I had a community brief. So a lot of it was, was actually out there running courses with, with, with um, different community groups. Mm-hmm. So that, that was not, uh, stuck, not stuck in some ivory tower. Mm. When I was working in Bradford, that was much more of a traditional role. Mm. But I think the main difference between then and now is that working conditions were better than you know, the, on the whole, you, know, you 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 had more security of employment. What I mean, it's now switched much more, to, particularly at junior level, still almost on a gig economy, being mm. employed, you know, mm. in short term contracts and so on. So for me, in the end, I, I think I think though I can do academic stuff, my interest is much more in being, if you like, in being out there and in, and engaging with with the world. Mm. Yeah, and it's a people subject. I mean, you know, you're studying sort of the mind and the mind in the world, I suppose. Yeah. So, and you need people for that. You can't just write about yourself the whole time. <laughs> like, I think this, and this is how yeah. I think, and this is what I'm doing. Yeah. Well, the interesting thing was, was when I was, is if you begin thinking about the, the if you like, a psychologist or a therapist and a client, mm. then... If you're just seeing it as the, this one particular person who's depressed coming to see therapist, but if you then say, well, look, in that small neighborhood, there are 10 people who are all coming to see a therapist or a similar therapist. So therefore it tells you that it's not simply one person, but mm. there are other factors which are happening within, within that group of people which are affecting it. Mm-hmm. And then if you begin moving out a bit further, and the only museum on the set, there are all these pharmaceutical companies making huge amounts of money for it. And then you begin, so what you begin doing is understanding the wider system mm. and how the different parts of the system are all impinging, if you like, on that one relationship that's going on mm. between the therapist and the, and the person on the other side of, on the other chair. Mm. So a large part of my life has been looking for ways, if you like, of exploring that particular dynamic. Mm. I mean, it's strange that you kind of fell into it to a degree, but then, I mean, you obviously stayed within it. And when, when you found it as a subject, was it like a whole world opening up for you? Was, was it something you were aware of beforehand or did you just kind of like, oh, I'll start doing this, this looks interesting. And then just like fell down the rabbit hole, as it were. Can I come at that from a tangent? That you yeah, mind? sure, yeah. When I grew up in Australia and went to an old boys' school, Australia in the 1950s was racist, sexist, homophobic. And at that time, Aboriginal, the Aborigines were seen down at the sort of, if you like, the bottom end of... of the racial hierarchy the, of imagined well, evolution. That's a good way. And in fact, when I was at school, Australian history started when Captain Cook arrived. Mm. Like 40,000 years of Aboriginal history mm. at that time just didn't exist. Mm. And many, a few years later, I was working for this foundation in Holland and it was doing preschool educational projects around the world. Mm. And one of the projects that it was, was working on 
was supporting was an Aboriginal education. So I was sent out to Australia to look at this particular project. And, and so that was, a, so that was immersing myself suddenly in Aboriginal communities. Mm. And so it was beginning to understand what the world looked like. And so I'd go to one, I remember being in one community and I'd say, there aren't any women, young women here. And they'd say, no, because the white people, white people come out from town on a Saturday night, Saturday night, drunking, looking for us. Uh, and yeah, two points in the trip. One time I had my own plane, which flew me out to this isolated settlement in the center of Australia. And the mission, and it was the mission missions settlement and the missionaries lived up on a house on a hill and the Aboriginal community were living in barrack huts, overturned cars down the bottom, you know, like a couple of hundred yards below. And we had this beautiful church service out in the middle of the Australian desert, which on one hand was this beautiful thing. And then they rigged up a truck battery and it was about, and showed this film and it was about the dangers of Rich Pharisees not getting into the kingdom of heaven, something like that. And you just suddenly thought you were in this time warp. You, you, were, you know, this was 19, 1970 or something. And you felt like it was, you, you were sort of transported. And it, I'm going to say that, but so that for me was this amazing awakening of racism. Mm. And, and I got it by being on the other side mm. and, 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 being, and being with them and, and then looking at the world from their point of view. And that particular bit of work finished when um, one of the things I'd been set up to do was to arrange a conference about Aboriginal education. Mm. And when I got there, I found they hadn't invited any Aborigines to this conference. Yeah, because of I, course, why would you, you know, what's we'll, we'll about you, not to you? Yeah. So I invited some. My boss flew out. And my boss at that time was basically representing this foundation was just concerned with the image, you know, a picture of him next to a minister of education. Mm. That's, you know, that's what I And in the end of, uh, the highlights of that particular conference and the end of that part, the end of that career came when uh, an Australian academic or minister of education, I can't remember, was talking. And um, this wonderful Aboriginal woman got up and said, white man, every time you open your mouth, you tell lies which changed the whole tenor. And you suddenly realize that these people weren't used talking about the subject matter with the, with the people that they were talking about. Mm. Yeah, used to making all the decisions based on an image well, that they had in their head rather than yes. actually people in the room who were like, oh, I'm a person, I have an opinion. Yeah, and you're talking about me and about yeah. my life. And yeah. my, yeah, my, my destiny, my options, my... Yeah. Uh, you know my opportunities yeah so i won't go too far down that rabbit hole because that that's a whole thing so yeah sort of well let's let's move into kind of how you ended up becoming a dramatist like how was that just a natural progression was it kind of like you'd done sort of role plays within sessions working with people and then it sort of like expanded out from there or how did that come about well, when I was working, running this psychiatry day centre, I went and found this amazing guy called Ken Spray, who was an artist, community activist, great storyteller, mm -hmm. who had been trained in this thing called social drama, mm -hmm. and which is 
something, there was a guy called Moreno, who was a contemporary of Freud, and I invented a thing called psychodrama, which was, if you like, people doing individual therapy within a group context. Mm. Social drama ran alongside it, where the focus was not on the individual, but it was the focus was on the, was on the group and the group story. Mm. And, so, and so, as I was talking earlier, my interest was very much about how you expanded the one-to-one situation to understand it within a wider context. And social drama was a wonderful tool for doing that. Social drama is taking a subject and, and exploring it in action mm-hmm. in, in the simplest way. So you're continually inventing stories, creating roles for people, looking at it from um, different, different viewpoints. Mm. So if I'll give an example, so um, doing workshops about global warming at the moment, um, mm-hmm. did one on Zoom in Turkey recently. Mm. What, and what we, did were, what we did was enable people to take a variety of different roles. So including, you could be a melting glacier on one thing, you could be a, a polar bear being affected by it, you could be a, a fossil fuel chief executive, you could be an XR activist. Mm. And then people, people would work together exploring those roles and then we put them into uh, a side room with the role they wanted to explore further and they were uh, at COP27 talking mm. about it. So and people... And it's that thing, if, if, if you just talk at people, you know, people gain a little bit. If, if you talk at people, if you show people, but if, you, if you engage people in some way, there's more learning. So the more people are actively involved, mm. that social drama becomes a way of actually, if you like, hitting more points in somebody's life. Mm. And so, okay. so that's, what, that's the sort of thing that, that um, social drama does. So mm-hmm. then, as I grew older, I set up two community, two community groups in the, well, one in Huddersfield, which was a group that was called Don't Doubt Your Age. Um, based, oh, yeah, I've heard of them. Yeah. Based in the Lawrence Batley Theatre. Yeah, yeah, For a bit. And then one in Leeds, which we did at um, seven. So the, the, one in, uh, the one in Huddersfield was um, a performing group. We went out and created community shows and, mm. and went to, community luncheons, we worked with social services and things and did things about old age and so on. And the one in Leeds was much more doing doing, um, improvisation. Mm -hmm. The COVID, um, when COVID struck, that basically basically ended the one in Huddersfield and the one in Leeds split. So half the group didn't want to go on to Zoom. Half the group did want to go on to Zoom, so that continues now. Mm. If, anybody's, if anybody's ever interested, wants to come along and be part of a drum, an improvisation drama group, please meet on Tuesday mornings. Please get in contact. Mm. And so, so that's that's been functioning for eleven or twelve years now. So it's a really ongoing, long group. The one in what happened, interestingly, happened to the one in Huddersfield is that we'd done some work on dementia. And then a group in Huddersfield from the South Asian community want, wanted to um, do some work aimed at the South Asian community about dementia, because it's not a topic which is openly talked about very often. They wanted sort of like an educational drama. And because of the original work I'd done, I got approached to um, see if I would help set up the group. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, the group themselves then created the 
organizing. And then we worked together to create a play about dementia. Mm-hmm. So, and that, but what was interesting, these were non-actors who were all, they were nearly, the majority of them were consultants in the NHS, giving up their free time, mm. come together and then perform. And so that group has been through, been through changes. It got decimated a bit by some of the consequences of Brexit. And but it's now, isn't a bit of the moment we're doing a play about the long-term effects of, of living with COVID. Mm. So we have a play that we're taking around now, exploring, and we works in English and they're doing Punjabi. And we're doing that primarily in the Copley's area because that's mm. where the, the particular funding for this play is coming from at the moment. Mm. Yeah, I was going to ask you sort of, so did you basically, when you said you, you kind of left academia, did you, basically go freelance like did you have you managed to keep some sort of institutional support so that's allowed you to do your work or did you just basically set up for yourself and learn how to apply for funding and you know get get yeah, different things the first time i went the first time i went freelance came from when i was working for the, the second time the extramural department at the university and so my hours got reduced and then i started doing free freelance so mm. for, a, for a brief period of time i had a security net mm. right and, mm. and then i went and then that was you know, just like any freelance it does you go out and you and you, you know and you find your gigs or you find your bits of work and then you have your reputation it's mm. been out there and that, uh, and so you get passed from one yeah the work comes um, to you then yeah. it comes to you as much as po- as much as possible so um that happened there. The social drama stuff was very similar. And again, you, you developed a reputation and, and people invited you to come and do the work. And mm. uh, the um, present, I work with a group which is called ISCAN, which is the International Social Drama and Creative Action Methods Network, which came together at the beginning of COVID. To, so we all became familiar with working on Zoom. Mm-hmm. And so it includes people from America, Holland, Romania, somebody who works in China and Australia, as well as people in England. So it's quite an international group. Mm-hmm. And then works partly as a support group and also as a performing group, so partly on Zoom mm-hmm. and Hot Times Live, where people are running workshops on things like ageing, anti-racism, mm-hmm. global warming, and so on. Mm. So we support each other in doing that in that sort of work. Mm. Are you producing, like, do you produce scripts from this? Is there a writer or is it all just like workshops and then people just remember, you know, their bit? But again, it varies. So mm. all the plays, all, if you like, the, the, actual, the actual community theatre stuff that I do, including the Asian theatre company, what we do is we plot out the scenes. Mm-hmm. The, but we don't actually have a detailed script for people mm-hmm. to learn. So people are free to improvise. So no two performances are quite the same mm. as such. And some of those uh, basic scripts we, we put together in a book, which, is, which, which we published. These, the social drama stuff, it all, it all just happens. And, and what's, difficult, what's difficult in the modern day is uh, about recording stuff and then showing it is 
there's all the data protection procedures mm. that you now have to go through and that you have to get everybody's, you know, mm. everybody's sign off and permission. You know, and yeah, and all, all of that stuff, which, so that means that, so there is quite a, there's quite a bit of stuff that's on the internet about social and stuff that I've done or been interviewed about, but a lot of that was sort of if you like when data protection wasn't as stringent as it is now. So it's much more difficult now to, to actually do a, do one that other people can actually watch. Yeah. And it's a strange situation as well, because you know, you, I mean, you're creating drama, but you're also workshopping stuff. So it's a process of discovery for people and that can be quite personal. It's not necessarily theater in the, I'm on stage. Look at me. I'm telling you a story. Sometimes right. it's like a personal discovery. Well, which is what you want. So yeah. if, you're, if you're working on climate change, you want people to come to, to get some understanding about mm. either this is something that I can do. This is something how I come to terms with it, or these are actions I can take. So the last stage of any sociodrama is sharing, mm. so that people have an opportunity to both talk about the different roles they've played, but also how that's how that's touched, if you like, on different parts of their personal life or what they want to do about the learning from mm. that. So you don't leave people about, if you like, abandoned at the end, mm. but there is a space to hold people before they go. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like really interesting work. It sounds like it, it's something I would personally, I'd get a lot out of that. So I can imagine, you know, it, it's good for keeping you interested. I'll, I'll send you details of future works. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to move into some of the sort of standard questions now, because I think, you know, sort of more stuff will come up as we go through it. So I'll start off with COVID. So this question's changing a little bit because it seems... I think we're starting to reach the point where people are kind of forgetting or, you know, we've moved on enough. So, yeah, so just sort of take us through your memories of going into lockdown, sort of at what point you locked down, whether it was before the official lockdown or whether you didn't lock down at all. And I also want to look at sort of the volume of work you were doing at the time did it mean that you your work stopped and you were kind of like what am I gonna do or you were like busy as hell going I have to arrange everything around this and I have to make sure everyone knows what's going on and what do you think have been the kind of long-term changes for you if there have been any from from COVID has it changed your work at all okay I think personally because we're well when COVID came we were both my partner and I were both in our seventies. We were fairly cautious, yeah, and unhappy. Unhappy, but, but in terms of people we know, we're almost feel like this minority now who haven't had COVID mm. because it's so prevalent and so much around. So personally, I think, we, yeah, as we were saying, we haven't been as cautious as some people, but we've been fairly cautious mm. in terms of wearing masks, social distancing. I mean, I can remember the days when you were, you know, when it was on and we were walking around the edges of Round Hill Park to make sure we could bump. You were walking across the other side of the road yeah. <laughs> to maximize social distance. So we did, you know, we did all of that, that stuff and, and we got more through and we've got food delivered you know, to minimize going to supermarkets for a while. So we did all of that stuff. Work-wise, interestingly, it's been brilliant because I was, getting, I was doing a lot of traveling. 
and I mm. got tired of traveling. So all the glamour of, of flying around and being in hotels and strange places, yeah, at night. Not that glamorous, but, really. And <laughs> lost all of its glamour. And, <laughs> and so when COVID came and everything switched online, mm. and I just had to walk downstairs into my office. And, mm. You know, so instead of having to get up, travel, go to an airport, mm. get to you just, so for me, um, COVID was a fresh breath of life mm. in, in what I, what I was able to do, mm. particularly. So what you, so you lost something by not having personal contact with people. Yeah. But what you gained from was that you could work with people anywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, give or take a time, give or take time changes. So that's balanced. So personally speaking, that's balanced out very well. In terms of some of my work, as I said, COVID decimated it just because the Huntersville group was very old. It was quite old anyway. So that made it, that basically brought an end to that group. It, it split in half the group in, in the one I was doing at, at seven in Leeds, but it enabled half the group to continue and, and, and still to meet at present. It affected the Asian theatre company because it, it brought, I, I think, because of Brexit difficulties, two, two people emigrated, consultants emigrated to Canada. And no, another one, I think, just the pressures of working in the NHS and during Brexit emigrated to Australia. So mm. my personal experience was the NHS lost three highly skilled, competent people mm. from as a consequence both Brexit and COVID. Mm. So we'll go to that last lockdown. You remember the last lockdown, the one that went on forever through winter and it was just dark and it just wouldn't end. <laughs> so it was it like, sounds, yeah, sounds like you didn't have a particularly good time doing it. <laughs> it was fine while it was sunny. It was just like when it, it was that, that sort of January, February and it just went on forever. Ever, and you were just like, oh, when are we going out? Well, it wasn't even just the when are we going outside. It was also because it was dark and cold. You didn't particularly want to go outside, but you were just sort of locked in. So what I'm getting at, I suppose, is did the lockdown become hard or irritating at any point for you? Like, was, are you quite happy to sort of remain in that? Like, did, did the lockdown bring for you just sort of staying in the house and being in the house more? Has it made that change or do you kind of? I, I think we were, we were in a social, but we were in one of the social bubbles mm. with, with one of the families that live, one of our families who lived close by mm. and we did, a, and we did a lot of grandparenting. Mm. So, so, so I think the, the grandparent, the grandparenting was, yeah, was, yeah, was, was something, well, what, in addition to being able to continue one's work which I could do, the grandparenting, yeah. Gave you that social interaction in there. And, and, and a lot of joy. Yeah. And a lot of joy from doing it. So I'm, I think it wasn't as difficult a, a time for us as it has been for other people. Mm. What's interesting is that we're now doing this play about long COVID, mm. bringing and talking about, so, yeah, and so the, the play that we're doing is set in the GP surgery. Mm -hmm. And so you have different people coming in with different effects. And let's say you've got somebody coming in with long COVID, but who, who left their partner, mm -hmm. who's a husband to COVID, 
and they weren't able to be with them when they died mm. because they weren't allowed into hospital. Year on, they're still grieving that. You have, we, you know, um, in the play, we have an anti-vaxxer mm. on there, so we deal with that. And the consequences, that still has, that's um, even in the present stage where there's, where there's a vulnerable person in the household and somebody doesn't want to get vaccinated, how, how do you deal with that? Another one, we've got uh, a young person with anorexia because of the effects of long COVID on, on children's mental health in particular, which has been huge. So we're dealing with that. Another scene is about a factory worker who, because they got long COVID, is scared about losing their job and, and then we can build into that all the awesome stuff about um, dual poverty and so on. So it's very current and, and sort of up to date. So, so even though there's bits of long COVID I haven't necessarily um, experienced personally because I know enough people around who had a variety of experiences and particularly the people in the Asian community who are actors in the play bring, bring their own experiences in, into it, including actually one of the people who's a, who's actually a GP in real life. So in a sense, I'm really much aware of, you know, that COVID isn't finished. Yeah. And even though the government wants us to pretend that it's actually finished, you know, whatever there are, two million people who are suffering the effects of on COVID mm. you know, at the moment, and who knows, who knows what the, um, when, you know, when the next strain's going to come and so mm. on. Mm. So, but again, so the present bit for me is, 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 is still around. So inconsistencies of protection in terms of do I if I catch the train to London do I work you know am I masked and I'm masked if I yes. go if I go to if I go to a supermarket do I do I mask it mm. I mean sometimes I try and I mask and I'm the only person left in the whole supermarket mm. you're still it's, seeing people doing it though it's pretty rare now mm. and so there's that so there's there's still all of those sort of personal decisions that are around mm. and so. Until quite recently, if we were doing social stuff with friends, mm. you know, we're, you know, we're tested in the morning, they're tested in the morning, mm. we did all of that. We don't, we don't, you know, unless somebody, so at the moment, the people I know, you only test if you have symptoms. Mm. You don't test anymore just because it's a social account, you know, just because you're meeting up socially. Mm. So there's still, if you like, not, not so much as a daily thing, but it's but but COVID is never far away from one's thinking and consciousness. Yeah, I mean that's why it's still in its question. I mean, so obviously, as I started this, I mean COVID was factually a thing, but as far as I was concerned, was not a thing. And then we went into lockdown, and it was kind of oh, okay. So I knew we had to kind of speak about it at the time, but as well, I'm I'm like I I still think I'll be talking about this if if we're all here at the end of the decade. I still still think I'll be talking about this then. I think that's a good debatable point about whether we're still here at the end of the decade. Mm. I don't fancy our chances at the moment. <laughs> no. So we'll do Brexit next. I I mean I, I I'm glad that you brought up long COVID as well because that is one that's. You know, it's kind of invisible to, well, it's invisible in the broader discussion and discourse, but it's something that, I mean, I see it, you know, I see other 
I'm working at a place temping at the moment and I see people who are sort of off long-term sick. I know of other people who have been off long-term sick and there is the kind of, oh, you're just making a fuss, you know, get over it kind of element because it's that whole thing of like, you know, diminishing it like they did with COVID of like, it's just the flu and stuff. It's like, it's not just the flu. It's a flu that's really horrible and kills way more people and is way more virulent and contagious and so on. But yeah, you don't hear much discussion of long COVID at all. It's still sort of, it. I think it seems to have a, like it reminds me of how the media would talk about Iraq war syndrome, for example, of like, oh, all these people are moaning about this thing. It's completely made up. That seems to be the attitude. Okay, so we'll do Brexit. So you've mentioned, you've mentioned this already. Basically, the question around Brexit is, did it affect your work at all? Like, was there any kind of noticeable difference for you? Was it good, bad, or didn't notice it? Or even... Was it too tied up with COVID to notice? I think it affects my work when you're working internationally mm. because what you have is you have international people, people in other countries, continents talking to you mm. about Brexit mm. as such. And occasionally, depending on what the topic, if you're right, if you're doing a social drama uh, event, then an element of Brexit might come into it. But but in, and, I, and I think probably if, if I was still traveling more face-to-face, -face, mm. then, then Brexit, Brexit might affect my work. But I don't, I don't import, export, you know, or anything else like that. It, it affects my work in terms, it doesn't affect me so much about my work. It, it affects me as you grow older, for example, and you think about social care. Mm. And then you're aware that the, one of the consequences of Brexit is that we don't have people, is there no longer people working in social care. Mm. So I, I was a board member of for a, long, a long time of the Leeds Jewish Welfare Board. If I had still been in that position now, then Brexit would be you know, a huge thing because you're mm. about the shortage, the shortage of stuff. But personally, if you're, you know, so I'm 80 years old now, and you have to begin thinking about what's going to happen to you in later life. Then mm. you immediately see Brexit has a huge implication mm. in terms, and, and you're aware of the indirect thing. Like if you go out to eat somewhere now, you know, restaurants will tell you about st difficulties of getting staff, mm. closing mm. staff. Mm. You're aware. You're aware about food being picked. And then you're aware about the idi idiocies of you have on one hand, all of these people, refugees, asylum seekers in this country, and they're being told you're not allowed to work mm. part of your condition about being here. Mm. And then, and then on the other hand, you have all of these work shortages, mm -hmm. private shortages. And you say, I am. And so it's this kind of yeah, web where it's like the thinking about Brexit in, in political terms has created silo effects. Mm. And you can't, you can't make sense, which is like, you can't make sensible decisions because it runs against prevailing political orthodoxy. Mm. But, but it's more personally, rather than we lost a couple of, uh, of people in one of my theatre groups direct, directly because of Brexit and, and it's, and uh, its restrictions on people 
being able to come and go from this country. But again, with teenage, with with um, teenage grandchildren and months old, then you're aware of if they want the limitations that the Brexit might well pose about if you want to travel around and work freely in Europe. Mm. Or study. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I will move on. We won't dwell on Brexit too long. So you've touched on this already, but so within your work, the question is normally like, what can you do within your work to adapt, mitigate or raise awareness around climate change? Obviously, you've mentioned some of that already, but I mean, is that something, well, I get the impression it is something that's sort of large in your consciousness yeah. and, and, and in your work. But yeah, if you just want to talk about that for a while. Okay. I suppose there's a whole bit about the different angles to it. So there was, I was talking about it when we were out with friends at dinner and afternoon tea yesterday. Yeah. So I have to backtrack a bit. The panel of the whole neoliberal stuff is that actually you minimize the state and what you do is you individualize problems. So a very good example is the water situation at the moment. Mm. The main problem is the fact that about privatization and the fact that the water companies you lose two two whatever it's trillion liters of water every year and haven't built any reservoirs and they're but, dumping all the sewage <laughs> and dump all the sewage but actually they now make it our problem so mm. what we have to do is limit the amount of showers we take mm-hmm. right so it, so it becomes or we're not allowed to hope you know water in the garden mm. so what you do is you individualize the problem. Mm. Okay. And that's, and that's been a common tactic through the tobacco stuff and things. What the, so what doesn't happen in the present system is that the villains are, are never the big companies, mm. right? And even if they're, even if like on, um, and the solution's never political. Like yeah. there's every, every bloody article you see on it will be what you need to do. And this mm. might happen or this could happen. It's like, you know, it will happen and it is happening faster. And I can't do anything about that. Like me, you know, going vegan and, and not flying is not going to stop people dumping sewage in the water. It's not going to stop people dumping smoke in the sky kind of thing. Yeah. So that leads nicely on to thinking about global warming. The thing about global warming is again this individualization. So it's up to you about about a bit of plastic. It's up to you uh, about whether you whether you you know you, you fly or not, mm. or what you do about your car, mm. you know, things like that. But actually, the big issue is fossil fuel manufacturing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We'll stop. And yeah, so, it's not plastic bags. It's stop fossil fuels now, like now. That, yeah, I mean, all, it's been that for 40 years. <laughs> yeah, 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 the, yeah. The fossil fuel companies knew about the consequences of their actions for, yeah, 40 years ago, what, what it would actually lead to, and had a disinformation policy ever since. So, so it doesn't mean to say that doing something about plastic isn't worthwhile, mm. but it actually won't stop the bigger problem. Mm, it won't stop what, plastic being made. On one hand, yeah. So what we have there's the big issues of fossil fuel start deforestation, mm. the whole you know environment in the ecosoil loss, yeah, all of that stuff. Ocean acidification. Yeah. <laughs> so in, in in essence, they they are things that you know gov- the governments need to do, or that 
at one level and say, you know, stop, you know, you know we still subsidize fossil mm-hmm. fuel companies, mm-hmm. you know, for mi- millions of pounds. And one of the risks in the present economic crisis, of course, mm-hmm. is that that is that people will say, oh, in the short term, we have to, in order to ease the crisis, we now have to um, make it worse. get some coal mines again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, from purely climate change point of view, the war in Ukraine is just, out, you know, it's just manufactured weapon, all the, all the destruction of buildings and things like that. Anyway, so, so, so then the question comes, so there becomes two separate things, which is, well, how do you live with that knowledge of, of the fact that the chances of, sort of, of us being able to stick to 1.5%, 1.5 degrees is pretty minimal. Mm. Most, most scientists now say that, you know, we, we, we're going to go past it in the next couple yeah, of years, yeah, if, if yeah. not months. Yeah. We do. Okay. So. But that's a really difficult thing for people to live with. Mm, but yeah, but they have to get over it because, you know, well, yeah, you, yeah. you're going to have to deal with it. It's reality. You have to deal with it. Yes and no. Yes and no. Yeah, mm. because, yeah, how do you, how do you live with, because it, at one level, it's, 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 the situation is so depressing, the easiest thing to do is to ignore it, mm. right? And pretend it's but not. But then it gets worse. <laughs> yeah, but, but it, yeah, but it's. But you still, don't have to think about it. As you don't have to think about it. I, and yeah, and the interesting thing is, if you are sort of doing this social dramatically, and that uh, you have somebody playing the role of nature, mm. yeah, voice of nature is saying, "How many bloody warnings do I have to give mm. you? Look mm. at the fires I'm giving you. Look mm. at the droughts I'm giving you. Mm. Look at the global warming I'm giving you." <laughs> as a as a race. Yeah, what is it about you as humans that you can't understand destruction? Yeah, yeah. And at one level, yeah, nature's sort of saying, look, in the long term, it doesn't worry us. Yeah, the planet, whatever you do to it, eventually, yeah, with yeah, that, I'll shake you up. Yeah, <laughs> you've got billions of more years of life. Yeah, we'll be okay. Yeah, look at you. Look at you know, what you're doing. So one interesting bit is how do you actually engage? almost at the personal level about what's going on for people mm. and if people, and so there's one quite a lot of work around how do you help people, if you like, you know, come to terms with that, cope with the feelings about that. That's one side. The other side of it then is, okay, if that's, this is so bad, what can you actually do about it? Mm. Which is a more... Which is the more difficult bit? Because if you actually do, do quite a lot of reading about it, what you have is brilliant, lots of analyses. So there's quite a lot of things about what the future could be like. You know, we don't have to have any more great, you know, we can, we can manufacture meat in the laboratories now. Mm. You know, we don't have to distract, we don't have to destroy um, rainforests and, and use up all of this land to for cattle and methane gases and things like that. We don't have to do that anymore. Mm. You know, so there, there are lots of solutions you know, like that, mm. which also says you can lead, you could lead a, a carbon neutral life, you know, carbon neutral life. But it's always how do you get there? You, know, you can see what the future's like. How do you get people who own yeah, that market to give that market up? <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. You know, because we live within a capitalist system, 
driven by short-term interests. So if you're a company, it's very, because of the way it's structured, what, you know, what you're doing is look, looking to the dividend that you can give to your shareholders. And so it's very difficult to say you're not going to get any, any handout for the next five years because we're going to give all of our, all of our profits you know, that we make, we're going to reinvest in, in the new Green Deal. Mm. Then what would happen is people would di- you know, take their money away from that and invest it somewhere else. Mm. So it's, it's, it, so at some of those things, what, you know, what's necessary is to find an effective way of dealing at the that mega level, mm. because it, it, it's, it's, it's only, if you like, it's only significant change, which can actually save us. Yeah. Which will make an impact. Yeah. 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 Cause anything else is just, uh, I mean, it, it's not even touching the sides, is it? Yeah, what it does in this individualization is makes you feel better mm. because you're doing something. But it's just busy work, though, isn't it? It's that sort of, oh, just, you know, just, just it's kind of, it, yeah, it, it's kind of like for the boss of like, oh, you can't read at work, you know, like look busy and look professional and stuff. So, like, what difference does it make? There's no customers in, like, you know, if a customer comes in, I'll serve them. So, sort of day to day for you, I mean, obviously, you you were flying you're not flying so much you've got the you know you can do more work on zoom you're doing active work around it you're raising awareness and so on yeah i mean ultimately it is it's got to be change that comes from the top because how much more can you change really in your work apart from like if you just dedicated all of your work to climate change awareness i think that's the only other thing that you could really do yeah, yeah, and, and yeah, and uh, I have grandchildren who say, you know, who are saying, oh, it's your generation which has destroyed our world. Well, yeah. it's, it's several generations. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. So, uh, you know, I just think, yeah, we did. Yeah. And then have to hold your hands up. And I mean, yeah, we've well, got. I, I, I said, sorry, go on. I, I was just going to say, I've said before, like with my parents, like I know growing up in the 80s, like I know that I encouraged my parents, especially my mom, to like throw more stuff away. Like it was like, don't keep that, you know, like obviously people who've grown up with rationing and like post-war and stuff, yeah. you have this kind of, you've got to keep things and make most of them and use them and reuse them kind of thing. So all of that disposability and single use stuff, I mean, that, that, it was happening before, probably from the 60s onwards, you were getting more and more of it. But the real thing, like for me, it was the 80s where you was just like, throw it away, get a new one. It's all plastic. Just, you know, because how many, like the amount of digital watches I, I bought, you know, they were the mobile phones of their day. Like everyone had a new fancy digital watch and with calculators or whatever on. And you would go, go through watches you know, that's a lot of disposability. That's, you know, there's electronics in there. They're already, you, you're already beginning that sort of pile of electrical waste journey. So yeah, like we're all culpable. Yeah. What were you going to say? Can you remember? No. Right, sorry. Well, well, no, that's okay. One of the things as you grow older, what you lose is if you like that parking spot in your brain where you can hold a thought and bring it out the minute or so later. It just mm. It just, you know, that, that bit of the short-term memory that actually just goes. 
I'm so, so screwed then. <laughs> I'm no good at that. <laughs> Enjoy it while you're in what I could say. <laughs> okay. So talking of short-term memory destruction, let's move on to social media. So I've, my question on social media is because more and more people are kind of doing it. And obviously I, I've had to do more of it with this, this project. And it takes up a lot of time and I don't always see the benefit from spending that time on there. I also notice when I haven't spent the time, but for yourself, like how much of your time do you spend working via social media? And is that time that you spend on it? Is that well spent? Do you see a good return on that time? I spend, I'm not on, I'm not on anything. I'm on WhatsApp, WhatsApp work groups. The only way I'm on Facebook is when my Huddersfield group used to, we were on Facebook for advertising, but because it, all the groups disappeared, we can't find a way to get off that bit of Facebook, which I'd be quite happy to do. But, mm -hmm. but they keep saying, they keep saying, in order to access your account, you need a password. As we don't have any contact any longer with anybody who's got a password. Mm. But, but I don't, I just admit, you know, you, you have 34 searches. I just immediately delete. I don't bother looking at them. But mm. so no, I'm on LinkedIn. But again, I don't, I don't actively use it. It's more people uh, look on it and send me and saying, will you accept my invite? And mm. occasionally, if it, if it looks relevant, I'll, I'll click on it. Mm. Well, but generally, but I don't use it actively. Mm. So now I, my partner's on, uses Facebook. And so occasionally she'll show me something interesting on Facebook, but no, I don't use Facebook. I don't, I don't feel any great sort of loss from, from not being on any of it. Mm. I mean, you've already, like, you've already got a full career behind you. You've already made contacts and, and built networks and, you know, people are aware of you and what you're doing. Yeah. So yeah, okay. it's not like you need to sort of reach more and more people. I mean, I suppose for you, it might be useful from a funding perspective if you wanted to be like, oh, this is the work that we've been working on. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I, I understand it's wrong. I understand its role. I mean, mm. I was involved in doing community work in South Yorkshire sometime years ago. I was saying, you know, you, what you need to do is you need to get school, you know, social media techie school kids to work with old age, you know, pair them up with old age pensioners and help bring them online yeah. so, that, so that then they could access people wherever. So, I, I mean, I fully see it. I fully see its benefits, but it's, and again, off on another tangent, it's kind of like, it doesn't relate still properly to the education system. So people are still, uh, we live in a rapidly changing world, mm -hmm. uh, but people are still being asked to memorize sort of dates of, of, of the Tudors or Henry's things that you just click on Google and you think there's no point in having to, to learn, yeah, learn this stuff. Yeah, what you're looking at is trying to, you, you want to have people who, who, are, who are social media savvy, but who are mm -hmm. creative, spontaneous, mm -hmm. who, who can do tea who could do teamwork online and then face-to-face. Mm. -face. These are the sorts of skills, but sort of like Michael Gove, you know, push education largely back to the dark ages in the mm. sense that most education teaches children to the, gen to the world that's been lost rather than to work, rather than to the world that's coming. Mm. Mm. 
Yeah. And that's... particularly interestingly, that was very much true working in China when, where so, so much of their educational system is very about learning. You know, mm-hmm. the teacher at the front tells you things, you raise all rounds. Mm-hmm. And when I was teaching stuff about social drama there, yeah, you, you, you'd do one session and they'd say, well, we know that now. And you'd say, no, you know it's theoretic, but social drama is about learning to do it in practice. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, and it, so it's that sense of being, being spontaneous and creative that they found much more difficult mm-hmm. to actually work with because it went against this whole Anyway, go on. What were you going to say? I can't remember. <laughs> no, you, you can't have that excuse. What are we on social media? No, I, I mean, I suppose I want to look at, I want to kind of bring it all round back to kind of, you mentioning that work on the drugs in schools and sort of the work stuff, like that idea of climate change being our, you know, like our addiction to oil, our addiction to to capitalism and treats and consumption and so on. I suppose I wanted to look at kind of addiction and concentration a little bit, just sort of get your thoughts on, yeah, just get your thoughts on that. Like how, what's the question? There is a question there that I want to get to, but you, you've got the gist of what I'm, what I'm trying to get towards, but like how these things link up. I mean, you know, cause you get all this stuff about ADHD and then there's a lot of people sort of want to blame the internet and tabs and like lack of concentration and flashing lights. And then you've got all the lack of sleep stuff and, you know, and then people getting anxious and then because they're getting anxious, they latch onto something that they connect to that gives them the comfort and the security. And then they're like, you know, whether it's food or drugs or shopping or whatever you, you know, and then, get kind of too absorbed with that i mean we've obviously talked about it but i i don't know i think well okay at one level we live in a world which is which is rapidly changing Mm. so it is i'm worrying so not only is it changing but in a sense it's looking particularly at the moment it's looking much bleaker Mm. so so um, too, I mean, you, you, you could go back and one of the things that, that people do at a time of, of difficulty is you go back to ways that you know, mm. if you can. I mean, there's a whole lot of people, yeah, you know, what you lose in the present world is your normal means of looking after yourself, whether, mm. whether it's fuel poverty, whether it's children with children with social contact at school, mm. which, was, was, which was disrupted by COVID. What one thing that leads to is mental health problems, and, and so stress and trauma and yeah, a heightened anxiety. So, so, so sometimes that becomes serious. So sometimes that that will take the form, like, as we were talked about before, of things like in children and eating disorders, mm. which which have grown and enor- which have grown enormously, or, or it can lead to. Uh, it can lead, uh, I think one of the other things that's around at the moment, there's a lot of anger around generally people are frustrated, angry. And so some of that is open to all this, all the conspiracy theory stuff. I want a scapegoat. Um, an explanation. An explanation mm. for it. It was interesting that we had one of our theatre performances with the Asian Theatre Company. We got invaded by anti-vaxxers. 
Yeah, who in the great. play or that at the happened. end of the day, yeah, right. get right. Real, really <laughs> quite frightening. They were children in the audience and they were very aggressive. And so I think there's a certain amount of anger which lashes out on any sort of on authority around. Mm. But then some of it is fueled. I think at the moment, the Tory government, particularly Trust, is where is being the ring, wants to be the ring incarnation of Margaret Thatcher. Mm. It's quite happy to have her full, you know, instead of taking on the miners, we'll take on near yeah, all, all the unions which are, you know, presently out, out there protesting about their working, working and living conditions. So in some senses, people have to find individual solutions, whether, whether it's that often in terms of pressure, there's under stress, you can be angrily outward or you can be, or you can take it on board inwardly where you get depression you know, or things like that. And addiction then becomes you know, something, if you like, it's a different form of self-harming. Mm. Now you're having that addiction is a form of self-harm of one level, but, but it, it, it's, if you like, you're, you're absorbing in some way the, the anxiety, the anxiety provoking world that we all live in. Mm. Yeah, it's a sort of uh, escape from pain into yeah. into peace and so yeah, yeah, something yeah. reliable, something that's you know here's my rock, I hold on to it. It's always there yeah. for me. Yeah. I mean, you say in mentioning trust there, I get this, I get this feeling that it's you know it's that sort of when you go on Amazon and they try to sell you the pen you've just bought, it's that yeah. like they have got no other ideas. It's just people bought this before. I'm going to sell you it again. That's the that's the real impression that I get because there's no there, there literally is no substance there, like and there wasn't there hasn't been any substance for a good while. It's just like here's a press release about a thing that's fixed the problem because I talked about it, and 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 it doesn't seem like action happens, you know, or they'll talk about something, you know, they'll stand in front of a burning building going this building's not on fire. It's like I can literally see it with my with my eyes. I feel like they're just there's this superficial kind of just do the actions, just go through the motions, just sell them what they've bought before. That's the impression that I get with a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean so it leads on to a I'll come back to it leads on to a slightly different question, which is that you now have companies like Meta with Lunch Facebook, Google, things like that, who who are now more who are now bigger than nation state, most nation states. Mm. And so it's it's almost if you begin thinking about it in the broadest sense, you know, it's you you're beginning to build a world a world structure which is very anti democratic because on one hand you have you have the populists here. And, and it's interesting that a lot of the things that the Tories were doing about tackling bits of democracy, whether it's limiting the rights to protest, mm. whether it's prologuing parliament, whether it's now attacking the judges, these other, if we, you know, if we were looking at them and in, in, you know, similar things are happening somewhere like Hungary, we'd get horrified. Mm. And there's something about that if they're happening on your own doorstep, mm. there's nobody calling them out sufficiently. Mm. Yeah, but there so wouldn't be any fascism on the BBC. It's like, well, yeah, there might be. <laughs> but it's almost like the BBC doesn't, it's still, you now get these presenters 
leaving the BBC because it's so difficult to be, to make it to, because of the BBC's need for balance. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And you could see that for a long time on climate change, mm. where even though the evidence was clearly that climate change was happening, the BBC still felt the need to have a counterperson there mm. when somebody mm. was talking about it. Mm. Yeah, but I they thought, never had, they don't have that many flat earthers on. I'm sure they'll get around to it. <laughs> As it but, becomes more popular online, well, they, they need yeah, to but, but you don't have, but, but also, you don't have many trade unionists on. So if you think about Nick, working yeah, class, yeah. Like, if you think back to the days when we had people like Jack Job and then you know, the government people, you you rarely you rarely get you rarely get a working class you know, somebody other than other than as a time of strike. You get Mike McRinch is doing a great job at the moment talking about it, but in terms of uh, of general discourse mm. outside of the present time, so it's almost mm. like that the people are, have to take this action in order to get their viewpoint heard. Because mm. otherwise, in the general um, course of things, it's it's sort of, it's educated commentators talking to each other. Mm -hmm. in this, in a, and and well, trying to impress their housemasters. Mm, you know, like, like they're not, the, the, they are literally just having conversations with themselves and, and nobody else is like a total disconnect. Well, that was a good tangent. <laughs> Yeah. yeah right. <laughs> so, so that was our social media. Let us do, okay, let's do universal basic income. So I think this will be quite interesting. So it, obviously you kind of will need to be slightly retroactive with this, but the question is, is normally if there was a universal basic income, so you're getting your basic needs met month to month, would you still work? If you would still work, would you still be doing the job that you do now? And if you would still be doing the job that you do now, how do you think that would be changed? I like the idea of the universal basic income that everybody has. And I don't, and I know it's been tried out in, in a small way. I don't know as much about it as I would like to know. Mm. In terms of it, if, yeah, I mean, this is really a question that, I mean, I'm lucky, and I see myself as being very fortunate that I, that I do work I enjoy doing. Mm. Yeah, some of the stuff I do, I, sometimes you're in a position you could charge a lot of money, and but a lot of the time, particularly now, I do it, I do it because I enjoy doing it rather than for any monetary concerns. Mm. And I'm at the age where nearly everybody else I know in my age group doesn't work any. But I still work, you know, I enjoy it, gives me satisfaction and it seems to be, and other people find it useful, mm. which is the main thing. So if, personally, I don't think it would affect me. I think it obviously, the, the question comes around much more about people who are living a gig economy life at the moment, mm -hmm. who, are you know, who are struggling you know, to do and often dead end jobs. Mm. Which don't give, which give minimal personal satisfaction. Mm. Yeah, it's access to credit as well. Like the discussion always turns to, you know, people aren't getting paid enough money. Like for me, the problems are like what we need to do, we need to put money in people's pockets and we need to put power in their hands. Yeah. I, I don't think concentrating it upwards towards the top helps anything. We've been doing that for 30 years, not made any improvements. It's, it's, it's a loss. You have to write it off. But I think that what they often miss with this conversation 
is the access to credit. You know, like the one of the key fundamentals of neoliberalism was we're going to stop people, we're going to stop people paying, you know, we're going to stop paying higher and higher wages mm. and we're going to make everyone buy everything on credit. We're going to make credit cheaper and more readily available. Well, you can't get no credit if you haven't got a regular job or a regular way to pay back. Okay, we've done a bit of that as well with like ninja loans and stuff during the subprime, but ultimately that's not, it's not a working path. And if people can't get the access to the credit to buy the bigger ticket items, all you're ever going to do is be chipping away at savings. And I think that's always, that that seems to be always missed that it's just, oh, you know, people aren't using their money in the right way or they need more work or they need more jobs or more hours or it's like pay people more, but also give them a way to get access to to money to credit i mean in a limited way credit unions do yeah do that then that part of their purpose like, yeah so there was a guy in somewhere in lancashire who set up a people's bank mm. and again you know it was an interesting story for a month or so and then he just disappeared so but and then you uh the guy who's set up the work in i think bangladesh who set up the micro loans? Yeah, 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 exactly. So there are other models for actually doing that. So I'm going to do this question with you before I go into my sort of final question. So when I talk about unions, I don't have a specific question on it. I think the one that I'm, I'm generally leaning towards is sort of what what your experience of unions has has been. Obviously, a lot of your work. You know, it's a professional field. It would be more professional alliance. Now, I was in the old days, I was an Algo shop steward and convener for a bit. So being in, I'd been in, I'd been in the union world. Mm -hmm. and I so I think two or three different points. So I think it's sad the, the trade unions have been so, so decimated over the last few years so that which has led to inequalities in wealth just increase enormously. So that to those that to those that have shall more be given, which is the way the world works at the moment. So I think that's really that's really sad. So I think trade unions have an important role to play. I think that at a different level, I think trade union. I haven't been to one recently, but my experience of trade union branch meetings was that they was that they weren't particularly creative, interesting affairs. So yeah. at one time, what I wanted to do was, I read somewhere that in Latin America, which is a lot more interesting drama sort of, social drama sort of work, trade union movement had set up a drama group so that you could, you could take an issue like low pay or something else like that, but instead of one, somebody standing up and doing the speech and somebody else having just you know, se you know, secondary to you know, all the very formalistic things. Yeah, they'd be, it'd be more lively as a way of opening up discussion and having different mm. Mm. So, using contacts I had, I, I, I wanted to see if there, were, if I could find any appetite for for doing that here. And there was, a, well, I mean, in the in the limited contacts that I had and tried, there, there just was no appetite. Mm. And I did the same thing with Labour Party branches, mm. then people I knew. And, and so that when we talk about the need to change, you know, the, you know it's sometimes the, 
the difficulty is it's rooted back in these historical, this is the way we've, this land versus the way we've always done it. Yeah. <laughs> Don't you be coming in here and changing things. Yeah. We've always done it this way. Uh, and you feel that, that in some of the democratic structures you know, are, are quite rigid. I've got nothing against the trade union movement other than I think concern the way it's been marginalised, which has stopped the working class have a more significant voice. And I think that it could look for ways of enlivening, as can the Labour, as can the Labour Party, about how it conducts itself. I mean, mm. I, still, I mean, I used to be a member of the Labour Party, but I remember once about, again, many years ago, there was an evening. Now I could either go to a community group or a Labour Party. My experience with the Labour Party at that time was you sat around, you talked, you passed fairly meaningless motions, which were sort of went up to the next level and so on. And you were, ca- and you were cannon fodder where you were expected to go out at, at election time and stick leaflets through people's doors. Mm. And unless you were making the Labour Party your career, mm. it's different, you know, where you, and you got into all the factionalism and things like that. It wasn't, it wasn't a particularly happy home mm. to be in. And it felt like being in, being in, going to a community action group, you could achieve a lot more, you know, personally. Mm-hmm. by being Labour Party branch member. Mm. Do you think we're viewed more, do you think some of that's kind of like left over from formal hierarchies and, you know, like sort of remnants of the empire? And do you think that we're more, I mean, I don't even believe this as I'm saying it, <laughs> like more egalitarian now. Like, I do think there has been, to a degree, there was a breaking down of barriers of like, you know, you're not necessarily better, but that seems to have been a bit of an aberration, maybe. Well, if we go back to some of the things that, yeah, we were talking about much earlier, then I think, you know, there's obviously been huge improvements in things like about, about issues to do with race, issues to do with gender, issues to do with women's role. Mm. Or you know, if I think back 50 years, yeah, you know, things like that. I mean, there's just much more... You know, much more awareness of, mm. uh, of these sorts of issues, much more, equal- much more equality. I think the, the gardeners have arrived by the sound of the law. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry. So, you know, and so much more open discussion about it all mm. than, than, there was, than there was 50 years, well, 30, 40, 50 years of that. Mm. Well, in that sense, I see a huge, it's like socially, and I'm aware you know, because of the Me Too movement and that back days and things like that, there's huge things to go about and issues still to do with race and gender and so on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there still seem to me to have been huge strides made over the last 50 years. But some of these are dwarfed by some of the bigger changes, like, mm. like capitalist change, like global warming, mm. which doesn't really care about some of the, it, it affects, the, that's not fair because obviously it, it affects poorer countries at the moment. Global war we much more significantly mm-hmm. at this stage than it does richer Western countries. Mm. Oh yes, global warming does have uh, a racial class and 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 the face and about women's role and so on. So yeah, yeah okay. So I'll take that back. These things. Are... It's really difficult, <laughs> isn't it? Because it's kind of like there has been progress, but then we're in a point where it's like, oh. Lots of things are getting worse. Yes. Yeah. So I, I just, at the moment, I see climate change and things like this. I just see that there's 
there's forces for the good mm. and, 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 and negative forces. And, mm. and I think in climate change, if we're not careful where that's one where the negative forces are, are out winning at the moment, mm-hmm. positive forces, but then yeah, you know, that perhaps on some things like me two issues actually is swinging the other it's swinging the other way. So mm. like but in terms of those which are destruct destructive to the whole human race, mm. then well, I brought it all global global warming and and perhaps it used to be so much bigger in the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, the nuclear threat. It's, it's yeah, like no one's even bothered. Which is still, which is now just appearing around around the sidelines again. Mm. Now, what might happen now? Well, you know, you know, this year the heat waves in India and Pakistan that were going on like yeah. for weeks, it was yeah. above fifty degrees, yeah. and this is in areas with huge, you know, like. Two countries with massive populations, both nuclear armed, both hate each other, and you've got this like heating force destabilizing things. Like that's dangerous. That's a dangerous situation. It's a dangerous situation with Putin as well. And it's kind of like, but also NATO letting all of those nuclear agreements lapse all through this century. Like. Are we are we not aware that these things can happen? Are we? Like, do we not think that some of these things are put in for a reason? It just boggles my mind sometimes. It's like, how do you? How do we let ourselves get to this point? Anyway, so my final question is on work and change. And yes, so if there were any three things that you could change about your role and your work, what would they be? Out of all the things that are around at the moment. I think the biggest thing would be to find to find a way that and I'm trying to work in a limited way with other people to do that. I mean, to find a way which actually does something significant about climate change. Mm. I think in terms of destruction of the human race and about the living about the world that I've helped to create for the various children in and for children and grandchildren in my family. I just think it's just, and then obviously for, every, for everybody, you know, for the whole of humanity, it's just, you know, it, it's scary and, yeah. and frightening. Yeah. And, and I think like lots of other people, it's kind of like, what is the, what is the magic bullet which will unlock the forces in a significant way where we will have huge worldwide Systematic change, which creates, yeah, which recreates the Garden of Eden. But perhaps the Garden of Eden wasn't a particularly good model to have. It's your, your, uh, right. your, uh, creates, yeah. And and again, there's no problem. It's not difficult to think of what the world might possibly look like. But it's how you actually create the stepping stones to get to where we are. To where we'd like it to be, and mm. find a, and to help find a way of, of being part of that process. I think I personally, the way that I see it more now is, I think, I think there's two things. I think there's a massive, massive appetite for action and for things to to happen. It's just we've not been allowed to see that at all. We've not been allowed to see it properly manifest itself in any way. 
but like every few years you get this big outbreak of climate activism yeah. and like people will flock to it like you you can build a movement in seconds in in like the the climate sphere and that there is a lot of work going on like a lot of work in the academic level in the industrial level in like there is a lot of work and a lot of study happening and good things that are going on that isn't just greenwash so i think there's more happening than we're presented with i think the main problem is this media it, it's the media and the mindset and it's this re-promoting of the idea of there's no alternative. There can be no change. We're not doing anything. And like the absolute refusal to do anything, things like getting to planes to go on these COP meetings or people who work in environmental studies flying all the way across the world for a conference. It's like, surely we're beyond this by now. Like all of that stuff should be basic. Stop doing that stuff. I, I think I think it's there waiting to break through. And I think there's a lot of stuff going on that, that is good that's already there that's kind of underreported. I think what needs to change is is the is the attitude, is the discourse, is the way that we 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 talk about things. That's that's the sense that I get at the moment. But I think that kind of ties back to your work, especially with you know the social dramatism work. When we were talking just then about you know various social improvements in terms of equalities some improvements in terms of equalities and a lot of really good ones to be fair that you know you've played a role in that by bringing out those stories creating that understanding creating that empathy and i think you know i think we're in a kind of process of of that at the moment as well i mean as you as you sort of I've got the answer of like, you're obviously not going to retire. You're going to work for like until you can't. I get yeah. the impression. Yeah. Do you see your work as having a mission or do you just see it as like, you do what you do and what comes out of it is what comes out of it and you just want to try and. No, I, I, I still see myself as being in it, you know. A small agent of social change. Thank you again to Ron for being my guest. Thanks again to all my guests. And thanks to you, Leeds, for being my subject. And of course, most of all, thank you to you, my dear listener. Come back on Friday to hear me speak to Lydia from Compass Arts. Congratulations to Lula in Brazil. And uh, yeah, that's it. You can follow this show on Twitter at Working Hours 3 and on Instagram at Working Hours Pod Leads. Use the hashtag Working Hours Pod Leads to stay up to date on when new episodes are being released, to DM me with your questions, or most importantly, to get in touch if you'd like to be my guest on this show. Please do chuck in anything you can to help the show grow. Go to ko-fi.com forward slash working hours and join me there for a pound a month or you can make a one-off donation of whatever amount. Uh, you can also go to patreon.com forward slash working hours pod to support working hours, again, from as little as a pound a month. Why not be super awesome and join both? Do something new and something different. Remember to like, share, follow, and subscribe to Working Hours. That's me. Cheers, ears. Take care out there and be kind to each other, leads. Working Hours is produced, recorded, edited, and published by Simon Treen for Western Studios Leeds Limited. The music was The Bees from Chopin's Etudes, which is in the public domain and was taken from museopen.org. Please like Western Studios Leeds on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash western underscore studios underscore Leeds. And on LinkedIn, 
linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash western hyphen studios. Leads, are you considering taking the plunge into podcasts or audio content? Then think Western Studios for support, advice and guidance on getting it made. At Western Studios, you work with a real-life lawyer who is actually in Leeds. Not a piece of software, not a course of articles or a series of live chats and video courses, but me, a person in physical place-based reality. If you want to work with me to make your podcast or any digital audio content in Leeds, whether it's for your own cause, your publicity campaigns, to promote your products, increase your sales, or just to create your own passion projects, then get in touch with me, Western Studios, now. Don't wade through vapid articles and videos and podcasts about how to make podcasts by disembodied virtual people on the web. Get on with making your podcast now, and then when it gets hard and expensive and it all goes wrong, which it will, then call Western Studios to make your podcast with you or even for you. Western Studios will take on your podcast boring, time-consuming and painful admin, recording, editing, transcription, whatever. Tell me about your podcasting pain points and I can make it all better for you. I feel your pain. For a charge, I will share it. Remember, podcast work is work. Leeds businesses, Leeds campaigns, Leeds brands. Got an inkling that you'd like a podcast but don't know where to start? Contact Western Studios at makemypodcast at western-studios.com and we'll start making your podcast straight away. The first hour of arranged consultation and pre-production time is free. £25 an hour after that for editing, recording, production. I can also arrange hefty discounts for the right projects. So tell me your idea and your budget and I'll tell you what I can do for you. What do you have to lose? Time, that's what. Time is running out. The best time to make a podcast was 10 years ago. The second best time is right now. Writers in Yorkshire, what are you doing with your lives? Hopefully you're writing. Well, I know there are listeners out there who want to hear great original writing performed as audio content that is about and for and has been made in Leeds. How do I know this? Because I'm one of them loiners what wants it. Help me make your old screenplays, unpublished novels, unperformed plays, stories, poems and performances, whatever you got baby, and make it as podcast content. Is your work arty, salacious, pulpy, strange? Good. Is it unfinished? Good. I can help you with that too. I can work with you to find actors, musicians and voiceover artists and quickly realise your projects. I get practice making the shows and you get a finished, performed and published version of your writing. Save yourself the hassle and the headache of making your podcasts on your own by working with me instead.